Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. State terrorism. The Iranian foreign minister responds to the killing of General Soleimani. Pompeo speaks. The Secretary of State is set to talk in the next hour. And a further Ghosn twist. Japan issuing a warrant for Carlos Ghosn's wife. We're live in Beirut. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to you all once again. It's been fascinating actually to watch what we've seen in terms of market reaction here in the United States and around the world. Of course, there's still obviously the ongoing tensions and concern about the Middle East. That caution remains well and truly front and foremost, but that's being backed with this fear of missing out, particularly for stock investors. I think at this moment, take a look at what we're seeing on Wall Street right now, where we continue to see a bit of improvement in sentiment. Right now, stock futures indicating mostly flat after what we saw an impressive reversal yesterday. We began the session and at our worst point, we were down around half a percentage point. We then managed to end the session higher by around two-tenths of a percent or more. All the major averages once again higher for 2020. The Nasdaq less than, uh, what, two-tenths of a percent below record highs. We could see it close to uh, record, in fact, at the open today. We'll wait and see what happens as far as uh, the rest of the markets are concerned. But if I'm just looking at what's going on in the European session right now, the DAC up by uh, six-tenths of 1%. The Kakaron, though, coming under a bit of pressure. So we are trading, in fact, around session lows here. So I mentioned the kind of tensions and concerns that we're seeing for investors right now. But, of course, this is a key worry. All right, so let's bring it back around now and get to the drivers this morning. Iran, of course, remaining our top driver this morning. And uh, let's get there. A deadly stampede at the funeral of uh, Soleimani. More than 30 people were killed and dozens of others were injured in the uh, southern city of Kaman, the hometown of Soleimani. His burial has been postponed as a result. Meanwhile, the Iranian parliament has voted to designate U.S. troops as, quote, terrorists. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is set to speak to the media, as I mentioned, in the next hour. Nick Robertson joins us live from Riyadh. Nick, so many developments, in fact, in the last 24 hours. But we'll talk about what's set to happen with this press conference from Mike Pompeo in the next hour. And then we can go backwards. What are we expecting Mike Pompeo to say? Because they've come under a lot of pressure for what was ultimately this threat that justified the strategic killing of General Soleimani. What can we expect? Yeah, the, the th- 
Yeah, the, the, the threat um, and, of course, what President Trump has said subsequently to uh, the United States ally Iraq, threatening them with uh, sanctions So uh, and also tar- the possibility of targeting cultural sites in Iran. So um, some of those things, I, I think we can expect Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to put a gloss on them. I expect we, we can hear from him details uh, of what those possible attacks would have looked like, the indications so far from national security advice have been that U.S. national security advisor have been that these would have been attacks on U.S. military installations as well as diplomatic installations, uh, embassies, consulates, that sort of thing. Uh, So uh, and also at sea as well. So we can expect more details on that. I, I certainly know from this perspective here in this region, they'll be looking to hear a perhaps more calming, restrained voice than some of those tweets from President Trump, who sort of ratcheted up rhetoric aimed at his allies and threatened what most of the United States allies would consider a war crime, targeting cultural uh, sites in Iran. So I think there would be a hope in this region that, that what we hear from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo does not ratchet up tensions. And I, I know from one of the uh, uh, Saudi officials who was meeting with him yesterday, this was what they wanted, the message they wanted to get across in the meetings, I'm told, were excellent. Yeah, and Mark Esper, of course, the Secretary of Defense, also seeming to contradict the president here, saying that cultural sites wouldn't be tackled. So this is, I think, something, as you point out, incredibly important to hear from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo today. Can we also talk about the, the leak of the letter yesterday that seemed to suggest a far sooner withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq, too? I mean, for, for the Iranians here, or at least the Iranian regime, that, of course, and their influence there, that would be a strategic win for them, too. It was walked back or denied by the Pentagon. Can you talk us through what happened there, too, Nick? Sure. Well, the the. U.S. commander of forces in Iraq wrote to his opposite number in Iraq with a with a briefly worded note letter saying that they were repositioning some of the troops. And the implication was that that could be part of uh, a later withdrawal. Now, that was walked back. That was uh, unfinished. Uh, President Trump said that it needed required more work. But I think what is very clear, clearly emerging here, several things. One is that Uh, For Iran, uh, Soleimani is a martyr. He becomes a strategic asset to be used, or his martyrdom becomes a strategic asset to be used. It's being used to isolate the United States. Um, And and they are very clearly making the threat against U.S. forces, not uh, the countries uh, that they're in, not the civilians of the countries that they're in, uh, and not their allies in the region, that it is U.S. forces, military forces, who will be the target. Now, in light of that, uh, what we've seen in Iraq, and in light of what U.S. intelligence officials are now saying, that they're seeing Iran move some uh, missile systems and drones around Iran. And these systems have been used for complex, sophisticated, long-range, highly directed, uh, very, very precise targeting. I went to one of the Saudi oil facilities that was targeted, incredibly direct Um, precise targeting of the missile systems from these drones. So um, it appears as if 
listening to the Iranian threat of attacks on military sites, that the United States has repositioned some of the forces who are no longer engaged in sort of active duties chasing down ISIS in Iraq or training Iraqi forces, repositioned them to safer locations within Iraq because of the possibility, of the potential of this pinpoint targeting, which could render some structures where the forces might be uh, inappropriate shelter. Yeah. Nick Robertson, thank you so much for joining us on that. And just to reiterate, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, expect to speak at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, and we will bring that to you when he does. For now, though, CNN's Fred Plankin spoke to the Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif, who called the U.S. killing of General Soleimani an act of, quote, state terrorism. Take a listen to that discussion. You have said that Iran will retaliate for the targeted killing of uh, General Qasem Soleimani. President Trump has said there would be a disproportionate response if you do that. What do you make of President Trump's threat? His threats will not frighten us. But he's showing something. He's showing to the international community that he has no respect for international law, that he is prepared to commit war crimes because attacking cultural sites is a war crime. In this uh, disproportionate response is a war crime. But he he doesn't care, it seems, about international law. But has he made U.S. more secure? Do Americans feel more secure? Are Americans welcome today in this region? Do they feel welcome? Your government and your leadership and the military here has vowed to take action against the United States. Well, the what United kind of retaliation States, is that going to be? The United States violated three principles, Iraqi sovereignty and the agreement that they had with Iraq. They got a response from the Iraqi parliament. They violated the emotions of the people, they will get a response from the people. They killed one of our most revered commanders and most senior commanders, and they took responsibility for it. This is state terrorism, this is an act of aggression against Iran, and it amounts to an armed attack against Iran, and we will respond. But we will respond proportionately, not disproportionately, because we are committed to law. We are law-abiding people. We're not lawless like President Trump. So you think that you can strike at any point? Well, we think, Because you obviously, you, we think it's no secret we, that you control militias in this region, that you have forces that are on your side in this region, in many countries. No, we have people on our side in this region. That's much more important. The United States believes that this beautiful military equipment, according to President Trump, that you spent $2 trillion on these beautiful military equipment. Beautiful military equipment don't rule the world. People rule the world. People. The United States has to wake up to the reality that the people of this region are enraged, that the people of this region want the United States out, and the United States cannot stay in this region with the people of the region not wanting it anymore. Would it be worth speaking to him? Well, he doesn't need speaking. He has to realize that he has been fed misinformation. And he needs to wake up and apologize. He has to apologize. He has to change course. He cannot add mistake upon another mistake. He is just making it worse for America. He is destroying the U.S. Constitution. He is destroying the U.S. political process. He is destroying the rule of law in the United States. But that's not for me to say that's uh, a domestic affair of the United States. He has enraged the people of our region. He has killed 
people of, uh, of this region. He has spent a trillion dollars. He said that the U.S. had wasted seven trillion dollars in our region. He has added another trillion. Is the United States more secure today because of that? A punchy response there, as you can see from the Iranian foreign minister. Investors made their own decisions very quickly, though. They thought that that retaliation or in some form could focus on the oil markets. And yet, look at what we're seeing for oil prices today. We're actually seeing them retreat in the session, taking back some of those early gains as investors, I think, reassess some of the risks around oil infrastructure. John Defterios joins us now. John, great to have you with us. We were, we were discussing this on the show yesterday and a number of analysts now coming out and saying hmm. the oil industry, the infrastructure is more secure and safe than it was even last year. And there are easier ways for Iran to retaliate here than targeting the oil industry. Yeah, I think the view, Julia, is that there's no clear and present danger. So why panic until we have evidence of a U.S.-Iranian confrontation? Uh, this is amazing because we have Iran through the National Security Council there uh, drafting 13 different scenarios that the head of that council said will be a historic nightmare for the United States. Now, of course, and this will continue to be the case, the Iranians are keeping that very close to the vest. So what is going on in this market right now? We've corrected by about five, five and a half percent since that uh, rally that we saw Friday and Monday, and then the sell-off that we see today. Uh, this is a market, though, that was already strong, Julie. We finished at the end of 2019 at $68 a barrel and change on the global benchmark North Sea Brent. And that's because of the work that OPEC Plus did at the start of December, uh, which triggered that rally. But I would be accepting of that market response if we had not seen what we did in 2019. Uh, the attacks on tankers here off the coast of the UAE and Fujairah, uh, pipelines and pumping stations in Saudi Arabia, and then the audacious attack that we saw uh, against Saudi Aramco in September. Now, uh, the U.S. Pentagon through CNN sources is suggesting that there's a threat here of drone attacks. They've warned Aramco we could see further uh, escalation. And the U.S. Maritime Administration is suggesting there's already been threats against U.S. tankers uh, in the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman as well. So if you're sitting in the Middle East, it doesn't feel too comfortable. And then you check the gold price, which rallied, as you know. Mm. So we saw the rally because people are rushing to safety. Uh, today, it is flat. So at this point, and we've seen this in a number of different analyst notes, it's, contra uh, it's contrary to what I'm hearing from sources in the region. They're on high alert, Julia. Uh, but the Wall Street analysts that I'm talking to and those in Asia say uh, we don't need to respond just yet until we see a real threat to U.S. installations. Seems very yes. odd uh, from my 20 years in the region. Yeah, cautiousness remains, though, I have to say. But uh, to your point, absolutely. Mm. John Defterius. Thank you so much for that. Right, we're going to stay in the region, but on a different story here, because Japanese prosecutors have issued an arrest warrant for Carol Ghosn. She's the wife of former Nissan CEO Carlos Ghosn. Carlos, of course, skipped bail in December, fleeing to Beirut. And Richard Quest is there for us. Richard, so many questions about the issuing of this arrest warrant, including the timing here, I think, this week. But just tell us first, what is this arrest warrant related to specifically because I think this is important too. So it is the arrest warrant relates specifically to evidence and testimony that Carol Ghosn gave to the court in Japan in April of last year at the time that Carlos Ghosn's bail application was being considered. 
Now, we don't know exactly what it is that the Japanese are saying she lied or perjured herself or gave untruth evidence about, but that is what they are now saying is relevant to her arrest. Now, in terms of her personal security, she's here in Beirut, along with Carlos Ghosn, where they're expected to hold、uh, some form of news availability, press conference,、uh, and the like, and do some interviews tomorrow on Wednesday. If Carol Ghosn has now been under, or is now under, an arrest warrant, she'll be in the same position to some extent as her husband in that. Uh, the Lebanon, Lebanese government does not extradite its citizens, and she is a Lebanese citizen too, like Carlos Ghosn. So both of them could find themselves not extraditable from here, but effectively having to stay here because if they go anywhere else, well, they risk being arrested. There was all sorts of speculation at the time as well of, of what role Carlos Ghosn's wife played in his escape from Tokyo and ultimately ending up in, in Beirut, to your point here. But I, I just wanted to point out that this arrest warrant doesn't seem to be relating to that at this stage. So there's huge questions to ask. Do we think that this will also be addressed if they do indeed decide to speak to the press this week? Carlos Ghosn has said about. His escape, two things. He's not going to talk about it. Even though he is going to do a press conference, he's made it clear he will not discuss the methods, the means, and the way in which he escaped from Japan. Separately to that, he put out another statement in which he specifically denied media reports that his wife or anybody else was involved, saying he alone was responsible for the plans、uh, of, of his escape. Now, obviously, everybody's going to want to know how that is credible or how that actually happened, but I suspect he's going to stick firmly to that line because the closer you get Carol Ghosn to his escape, then the more you make her potentially liable for what happened. As it is at the moment, the Japanese have held discussions with the Lebanese government. Lebanon has said, even is in a very uncomfortable position. It welcomed him here. It said he entered Lebanon legally, but of course, it also receives money from Japan. But it doesn't extradite its own citizens. You're getting the picture here、uh, that it's an extremely complex web of circumstances and laws. That's by no means certain how it plays out, Julia. No, and pivotal to hear what he has to say if he speaks this week. Richard, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Richard in Beirut there. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Australia, a state of emergency remains in effect with around 100 bushfires still active. The US is sending a team of 20 people to help aid in those efforts. Insurers estimate losses at close to $500 million so far. Puerto Rico has been shaken by a series of powerful earthquakes in the last several hours after getting hit with the earthquake. Authorities are continuing to prepare and assess the damage. That was undertaken as a result of those earthquakes. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. Great to have you with us, and plenty more to come on the show. We'll be back.
One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. It's looking like a pretty mixed open after Monday's come from behind gains that we saw. The S&P and the Dow futures right now, I'll call that relatively unchanged. We are still seeing the Nasdaq higher by some two-tenths of 1% pre-market. We are now, for these majors in the United States, less than half a percent away from record highs. Signs of that risk-off trade also receding despite the uncertainties that we still see across the Middle East. We've been talking about this really for the last two days. Take a look across asset performance here. The MSCI World Index up around one-tenth of one percent. Gold, it was trading flat to slightly lower earlier. It's back kind of into positive territory. We're going to remain cautious. I think that's what we have to underscore here. The 10-year yield still below, significantly below that two percent. Right now down at 1.8 percent. Giving back some recent gains, though, here, the Swiss franc, and uh, we've got what we've got it down some two tenths of one percent versus the US dollar. Let's talk about what's going on. Mark Zandi joins me. He's now the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. Mark, fantastic to have you on the show as always. We've got the battle here of the ongoing uncertainty and what might come as far as geopolitical risk with a feel I got yesterday, particularly from the equity markets here in the United States, of a fear of missing out on any future rally. What do you make of it? Well, I think uh, uh, investors are on edge. Uh, you know, the conflict, the tensions with Iran are a, a serious threat. Uh, so oil prices are up. We've seen global oil prices up uh, several dollars a barrel. And the rally, the powerful rally in the equity market that we, we've been experiencing in the U.S. and across the globe has been put on pause. And I think investors are going to remain uh, cautious until they get a little bit more clarity with regard to what the Iranian response is and what the American response is to the Iranian. So I, I think uh, global investors are, are, are on edge and uh, I don't see the market going anywhere quickly until some of these uncertainties are, uh, are resolved. What created the turnaround yesterday for stock markets was a reduction in the rally. As soon as oil prices started to soften and we saw some of the, the anxiety in the oil markets retrace, the stock markets rallied. So to your point, it's this sensitivity about not only the short-term impact of higher oil prices, perhaps, but the fundamental impact of, of oil prices and the impact that higher oil prices have on the economy. Can we quantify what that means? Say what a $10 price increase in oil prices means for the real economy here? Sure. So a $10 increase in oil. So right now, let's say we're at $60 WTI, West Texas Intermediate. We go to 70 and we stay there. That'll shave about a tenth of a percent off of GDP, U.S. GDP, uh, over the next year. The impacts are more serious globally. It'll shave about a quarter point off of growth over the year uh, globally. And that's because the U.S. has become less energy oil dependent. You know, the fracking revolution means that we're producing a lot more oil, we're exporting a lot more uh, energy products, and so we're much less vulnerable to a rise in oil prices. But nonetheless, if oil prices rise, uh, then that will hurt consumers, we'll have to pay more at the gas pump, uh, and that will weigh on economic growth. Uh, So uh, not inconsequential. Overall, you were less optimistic, I think, than than many analysts about stock market performance in 2020. You said it was going to be a tough year for stocks. Why do you think that? What's the justification? And is it data-driven and fundamentals-driven? Because I look at some of that survey data from the United States on Friday from the manufacturing sector and phase one deal with China or not here on trade, the data still 
saying cautiousness, particularly in the manufacturing sector to me. So talk us, talk us through what you're thinking here. Yeah, you're right. I, I'm uh, less upbeat about the stock market than it, clearly uh, global investors have been. Uh, you know, I think 2020 is going to be a, a more difficult year for equity investors. Lots of reasons. Uh, most fundamentally, I do think corporate earnings growth, profits, are, are, are going to be uh, flat this year. Uh, sales should be okay. I don't think the global economy is going into recession. You know, now that the uh, that President Trump has called a truce in his trade war, at least temporarily, I, I think a recession looks less likely. Uh, but I do think profit margins will continue to decline, and so I don't see much growth in corporate earnings. And of course, corporate earnings growth are the, is the key fundamental driver of, uh, of stock prices. The other thing is uh, valuations, you know, given the run-up in stock prices, are very, very high. Now, they should be high because interest rates are low, but even accounting for that, uh, stock market valuations are as high as they've been since the Y2K bubble. So uh, that, all that combined makes me less optimistic about uh, stocks in, in 2020. And then, of course, you throw in these geopolitical uncertainties, Iran just being one of many, uh, you know, that just adds to the concern that, uh, that I have with regard to, to equity prices this year. Makes perfect sense. Mark Sandy, fantastic to have you with us, Chief Economist for Moody's Analytics there. Now, a quick promo for you too. Stay with CNN because Christian Armanpour is going to be speaking to U.S. Secretary of Defense Mark Espers at 1 p.m. in New York, 6 p.m. in London, right here on CNN. Stay with us. The opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange is next.
Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. We just heard the opening bell this morning for the second time this week. A relatively muted start overall for U.S. stock markets. So tech stocks are managing. Oh, no, I'll change my mind. Actually, we're relatively unchanged for that. Uh, not able to build on the half a percent gains that we saw for the tech stocks yesterday. Still a need for caution, I think, here amid the continued tensions over in the Middle East. Iran, of course, too, continuing to threaten retaliation in response to the death of General Qasem Soleimani. That's clearly going to be a continued focus for investors at this moment, as too is the oil markets. Brent crude pulling further back from three-month highs hit in the previous session. As you can see, we're down some one and a quarter percent for Brent, just over one percent for WTI. This was the turning point for the U.S. stock markets yesterday as we saw oil prices pull back some of their gains. We saw a flip in sentiment, more positive sentiment for stock markets. But as you can see right now, an early start to the market here is, remains pretty fragile. What about for the U.S. dollar strengthening in trade today? The dollar index currently up around a quarter of a percent. It's been under pressure in recent sessions as investors were buying things like the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc, the safe haven currencies, and then, of course, selling the dollar against it. So a bit of a reversal of that trade, too. Now, America's top diplomat set to speak live from the State Department in around 30 minutes time. It will be the first time Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was given a live briefing since the killing of General Soleimani. Now, former U.S. Ambassador to NATO Ivo Dalda joins us now. He's also president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Ambassador, fantastic to, uh, to have you with us. You've said that the killing of General Soleimani is likely, and I'm quoting you, a strategic disaster for the United States. Is there anything that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, can say this morning to perhaps change your thinking here? Well, it will be very difficult uh, because the immediate consequences of the killing uh, strategically are to advantage uh, of, of Iran. Uh, we are seeing pressure in Iraq for U.S. troops to be pushed out uh, and to withdraw, which means that Iran's influence in uh, Iraq will uh, increase. We're seeing allies uh, of the United States distancing itself from the United States, leaving us standing uh, alone. And importantly, we see inside Iran hardliners really gaining uh, the strength of popular support. Uh, and we are likely to see a more hardline Iranian regime uh, than we might otherwise. So even without retaliation by the Iranians, uh, we already see a significant strategic impact of the killing that was in many ways unforeseen, I think, by the administration when it took this action. There was some confusion yesterday over whether or not the United States was going to accelerate its withdrawal of U.S. troops from Iraq. Would this be perhaps the most efficient form of retaliation from the Iranians here, greater influence in Iraq without even having to do anything? The, the U.S. creates that situation too here if they withdraw quicker than, than at first believed. Yes, I think that's, uh, in fact, one of the ways in which Iran can, quote unquote, retaliate to let uh, the Iraqi political situation play out in such a way that the U.S. troops will have to leave. Uh, there's some debate about whether the U.S. has already ordered uh, uh, American troops to leave uh, with a letter that was uh, leaked yesterday uh, from the uh, senior commander in, in, in the region. But if U.S. troops leave Iraq, then U.S. troops will also have to leave Syria because the Syrian troops are deeply dependent for intelligence and support uh, on the U.S. presence in Iraq. Uh, and in both cases, it will strengthen Iran's hand in Iraq, in Syria, in the region, 
which is exactly what we didn't want to happen. What about the feeling among some of the Gulf allies here? I mean, no one, it seems, wants to see any form of escalation at this situation. The, the Iranian foreign minister accused the United States of creating instability in the Middle East where um, none was necessary. What are your thoughts on that? And how are Gulf allies reacting, particularly as far as Iran here? Well, I think the, the, they are very uh, uh, worried about the outcome here. Uh, the unpredictability of the Trump administration is something that has left our allies in the region, and particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, deeply uncomfortable. Remember in May, the Iranians attacked Saudi oil facilities, taking offline 50 percent of the Saudi uh, oil production capacity in the United States, which had uh, pledged to protect the free flow of oil out of the Persian Gulf since Jimmy Carter was president, did nothing. And at that point, it was clear to the UAE, to the Saudis, that they could no longer rely on the United States uh, to protect their interests, and they started a, a quiet diplomatic outreach to Iran. I think this has now been uh, reinforced. They don't want to be the target of, of retaliation by the Iranians, and they are trying to find ways to de-escalate the situation. And one way to de-escalate is to distance oneself from the United States. You know, one of the first questions I think that Mike Pompeo will be asked today in, if he doesn't already answer the question, is what was this terrorist threat that led them to believe that a strategic killing of General Soleimani was the only option available to them here. Do you think that question get, gets answered today? And is it irrelevant anyway, perhaps, in light of the following and the ensuing events? Well, I, I don't think it will get answered. I hope it will be answered by uh, the administration when it briefs the Congress uh, tomorrow. Uh, but here is the reality. Uh, we know from the reporting that uh, the killing of, uh, of Qasim Sulami was one of, was one of the options on the table to respond to Iranian actions. And because it was an option, uh, it means that there were other uh, ways in which one had to deal with uh, the, the, the challenge that was there, which raises significant questions about whether there indeed was an imminent threat uh, or whether that was an ex post facto rationalization for the decision uh, to take him out. So fantastic to have you with us, uh, Ambassador Ivo Dalda there. Thank you so much for your perspective this morning. All right, we're going to come back after this. Stay with us. Coming up, the CEO of Rolls-Royce Motorcars on why its SUV is a key driver for success. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show with a look at today's boardroom brief. IKEA is to pay $46 million after a toddler was killed by a three-drawer dresser which toppled over. It's thought to be the largest settlement for the wrongful death of a child in American history. The lawsuit alleged IKEA failed to do enough to improve the safety and stability of its dressers. A TV with a rot rotating screen is one of the stars at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. It's called the Ciro. It's made by Samsung and it's designed to mirror your phone with social media videos in mind. 
Aston Martin slashing its profit outlook after a, quote, very disappointing year of falling sales and high costs. The luxury car maker is predicting profits of around $180 million, almost half what it made in the prior year. The news saw shares falling around 12% in today's session. Now, while Aston Martin struggles, Rolls-Royce is speeding ahead. The brand says it recorded a 25% jump in sales in 2019. And according to the firm, worldwide demand for their first ever SUV was a key driver of success. North America led sales, followed by China and Europe. And for more, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Torsten Muller-Odfoss. He's the CEO of Rolls-Royce Motorcars. Torsten, fantastic to have you with us once again on the show. And congratulations on a record year for the firm. Talk to me about the SUV sales, such a strong performance here. And is it sustainable or will we see that stabiliser in 2020? I uh, thanks first of all I mean uh, just to say that plus 25 percent is an excellent achievement I would even call it a British success story to the best what we delivered here in 2019 it's not only just for the sake that Cullinan was such a success it is also that we basically pulled all strings with all our other cars worldwide to make that result happen in a very let's say professional way so for that reason it's a great result chew on that plus 25 percent for a minute that's a great result. I mean, Cullinan, of course, has proven to be a stunning star for us. Great order book from the very first day on when we opened the order book. And uh, we are still sitting on a very strong order book far into 2020 for Cullinan. So for that reason, I'm very pleased how the brand developed here over the last years. I want to talk to you about what you're seeing in terms of some of your largest markets. And of course, we spent a lot of this show about what's going on in terms of rising tensions in, in the Middle East. I believe the Middle East is your third largest market. I just wanted to get a sense from you, particularly given what we're talking about here with the ultra high net worth individuals. What's your outlook for the region? Are you pairing your expectations for demand in any way at all at this stage? I mean, for 2020, I'm, uh, I would say, optimistic again. Uh, that we should see a strong year for Rolls-Royce motor cars. Growth-wise, of course, not on levels like plus 25%, uh, but we will again see a strong year, probably similar levels uh, uh, finally on 2020 uh, compared to what we have achieved in 2019. So I think when I look into the world, uh, our biggest market is uh, the Americas by far. 30% of all our volume goes into the Americas. Lots of ultra high net worth individuals over there. Second market now is China, second biggest market worldwide, roughly 25%. Europe has been very strong, including the UK last year, uh, around 20%. And then comes the Middle East, 15%. So for that reason, I'm very pleased on the results. Middle East in particular has done a tremendous job uh, just uh, uh, being here a little bit on Middle East uh, because Cullinan has played an important role in this kind of market. So at this stage, you're, you're not pairing back your uh, estimates for, for the Middle East in region specifically. You're, you're still remaining optimistic here. I mean, I mean that. Yeah, I mean, that depends, of course, what happens now in the course of the uh, of course. Uh, year and in the course of the next months. But so far, the order bank, uh, what I see here today is still very healthy also for the Middle East. I mean, you never can forecast what happens down there. And also we as a brand, as a luxury brand, we are not immune against 
I would call it recessionary tendencies in an economy or in a country or even some political unrest. So that of course affects uh, the mood and the sentiment. For us, uh, the consumer sentiment is important. It's never about money. Money is always available. It's about the consumer sentiment. And if that is affected, of course, people might think twice or three times, should I really go for a new Rolls Royce? Yeah, it's such an interesting point. It's about sentiment, perhaps, rather than the actual cost. Um, one thing that you aren't worried about or talking about, really, is the electrification as far as uh, your role as a car maker. But I did read that what you're looking at is designing the world's fastest all-electric plane. Can you give us a, a little hint about how soon we may see an all-electric plane coming to market? Because this is fascinating. Uh, no, I mean, that is just speculating. Uh, oh. What I said is, and that is already <laughs> in the making, that in this decade, Rolls-Royce Motorcars goes electric. We said Rolls-Royce Motorcars, and I said it goes electric this decade, Julia. And uh, the project is in the making, but I haven't released anything more, and uh, I won't release anything more today. So wait and see. It will be, again, a stunning Rolls-Royce that will come to the market in this decade. And we also yes. committed that long-term, the brand will go full electric in all models. Fantastic. Well, we'll look out for that, whether it comes early on in the decade or, or later on. Congratulations again, sir, on the, uh, the sales, a great performance. Torsten, right, yeah. Thank you very much, there. Julia. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Brilliant. The CEO of Thank you. Thank you. All right, let me give you a look at today's global movers. Alphabet, lower the company shares, uh, rallied some 2.5% to an all-time high on Monday. So uh, pairing a little bit of that gain, the leading research group sees Alphabet launching larger buybacks and perhaps a dividend this year too. Wow, watch out for that. Goldman Sachs, meanwhile, trading higher in the session. The financial giant announcing a reorganization of its business structure. The news comes before the release of its fourth quarter earnings report next week. Goldman's is making the changes so that the bank better resembles other Wall Street firms. It will give retail banking its own business category. Cybersecurity firm FireEye is rallying. The company's shares were upgraded to a buy at SunTrust today. Analysts say FireEye could see increased business given the ongoing Iranian cybersecurity threat, among others, of course, too. All right, one of our uh, other key stories today, Tesla's Elon Musk was in a dancing mood in China. He actually ripped off his jacket at Tesla's Shanghai factory as it gets to work on a new Model Y car. It's another milestone for the first to the automaker's first foreign car plant. The news helping Tesla hit a fresh all-time high today. Take a look at that. Shares up some 1.3% in early trading. With all the details, Stephen Yang joins us from Beijing. Stephen, always a pleasure to have you with us. Walk us through the details here, and I'm not talking about Elon Musk's relatively ropey dancing. I'm talking about the cars. Talk us through it. Well, Judy, I think Elon Musk broke into a dance at the middle, uh, in the middle of the ceremony, probably because the uh, winning streak the company has had in, chi in the Chinese market so far is music to his ears. Remember, this gigafactory in Shanghai, which, of course, is a multi-billion dollar investment from Tesla, broke ground only a year ago. And now they're churning out a thousand cars per week, with the eventual goal being producing 3,000 cars per week. These are impressive numbers, especially given that sales in this market 
the world's largest auto market, have been dropping three years in a row because of the economic slowdown as well as the phasing out of government subsidies. But even with these challenges, as well as uh, growing uh, competition from both domestic and international rivals, Musk uh, was very bullish today uh, on Tuesday, saying that they, as you said, not only would produce Model 3 sedans, but also the popular Model Y uh, crossovers and even opening a design center in Shanghai specifically to design cars for the Chinese market. And the other interesting thing, Julia, is this is also a success, uh, success story the Chinese government is eager to show off because this, of course, is the time when they are trying to show the rest of the world that they uh, embrace foreign technologies, embrace foreign investments, opening their market to uh, anyone who is actually uh, able to churn out quality products for their domestic consumers, as well as to spur domestic growth in industries that government considers cutting edge and environmentally, uh, environmentally friendly. So I think their goals from both sides really are aligning very well. And also, Julia, considering a Tesla is a U.S.-based company, and we are, of course, still in the middle of a trade war between the two countries. Uh, the investment Tesla has had in China is also helping the government uh, reinforce this message that these are uh, two mutually beneficial economies. Julia? Yeah, you make some really fascinating points here. I, I just wonder whether they're going for volume here, perhaps, rather than for margins, if they're sort of cutting prices. I believe around a 9% price cut in order to compete with the competition there. So it's going to be interesting to see the numbers on this too. Stephen, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much. Stephen Jang there calling, uh, calling in from China. Now up next, we return to today's top story. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo addresses the press in just 15 minutes' time. We're in Washington and we will preview those remarks. Stay with us. We're back after this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten.
show just into CNN. It's emerged Russian President Vladimir Putin has met with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Russian state media is reporting President Putin made a rare visit to Damascus and held bilateral talks with Assad. President Putin said enormous progress has been made in Syria. It's his first visit to Syria, in fact, since the start of the nearly nine-year-old war. President Putin expects to travel to Turkey now for a meeting with President Erdogan. Separately in Washington, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo due to address the press amid heightened tensions in the Middle East. Earlier today, the U.S. Defense Secretary denied reports that the United States is pulling troops out of Iraq. Alex Marquardt joins us now on this. Alex, so many questions for the Secretary of State here. The question is, does he answer them? Talk us through what we can expect. Well, he's going to be faced with a barrage of questions from the very talented uh, State Department press corps about what exactly the nature of these imminent threats against U.S. interests were. Now, this strike uh, against Qasem Soleimani happened uh, in the evening on Thursday here in Washington. So we're almost five days out from that. And Julia, there, there are really are very few answers, very little insight into uh, what the nature of the imminent threats were, uh, how significant they were uh, in order to justify the killing uh, of a figure like Qasem Soleimani, who, of course, is a truly mon- was a truly monumental figure in Iran. Now, Mike Pompeo really has been uh, the leading figure uh, of the Trump administration that, that, that they have put out front um, to explain, to justify... Uh, that drone strike against Qasem Soleimani. And really what all that he has said is that there, there was a, a significant, uh, imminent uh, series of threats against U.S. targets in the region. But what we really have failed to hear from the administration so far are, are any sort of concrete details. Mike Pompeo and others uh, publicly and privately saying uh, that revealing those details would reveal sources and methods uh, that would threaten U.S. intelligence assets in the region. But I can assure you, Julia, those questions are not going away. So we are hoping to get at least a few more details about the nature of those imminent attacks from Mike Pompeo when he speaks shortly. Yes. What's the strategy? And, of course, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, expect to speak within the next few moments. We'll bring that up to you live here on CNN. Thanks for watching. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 